great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. You can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. And coming up in just a few minutes, I want to talk about something this past weekend. I had a car with one of those uh, keyless remotes, and there was something I forgot to do getting out of the car that ironically enough, when I was flying home, I read a story about the fatalities that are occurring because of keyless remotes. I'm going to tell you what you need to know in today's Clark Rageous moment. And later on, drone prices have collapsed, and their drones now cost a tiny fraction of what they were just a few years ago. Well, there is a connection to personal transportation and drones and how affordable that's going to be in the future, I want to share with you. I want to talk right now about uh, during the trip I just took to Virginia for a cousin's wedding, I went to check out Lidl, L-I-D-L, a store that I've shopped at forever in Europe. Lidl has come to the United States. L-I-D-L is... Uh, it's spelled Lidl, but it pronounces like Beetle, but with an L. Lidl has been opening stores gradually in the Virginias, the Carolinas, and also I think in New Jersey, maybe. I'm looking right now at their list of stores. Yeah, New Jersey. And um, so Lidl is the big corporate rival in Europe of Aldi. Aldi, which has been in the United States for decades, has a complete no-frills kind of store environment and sells groceries incredibly inexpensively. And wherever they go, they face no meaningful competition if price is what you're into. Well, Lidl has been their arch rival in Europe all through the decades. And Lidl operates a different kind of store than Aldi. They are roughly three times the size of an Aldi. And, you know, Aldi's corporate cousin or sibling is Trader Joe's. They are uh, somewhat, it's a technical thing in Germany, so you can't really call them uh, co-owned or whatever, but they're somewhat common ownership of Trader Joe's and Aldi, Lidl kind of crosses between the two of them, has the same kind of stuff as Aldi with the private label brands that are very, very cheap. Stores are smaller, but the Lidl's are not Spartan. When you walk in the door of one, first you see uh, fresh cut flowers like at Trader Joe's, And then to the left, you see something that we're not used to in the United States, a large bakery operation that is common in Germany is the first thing your eyes really see with a variety of breads that are freshly baked and pastries, uh, more pastries here than you see in Europe because, well, we Americans like pastries more than we like bread, Uh, donuts, that kind of thing. And then a wide variety of options of wines and beer. And then uh, 
when you get to regular food items, narrow, narrow selection like Aldi at incredibly cheap prices again like Aldi. And then instead of a center aisle like Aldi does of non-food items, Lidl does a huge amount of square footage in the middle of the store with clothing, electronics, this time of year gardening tools, um, patio furniture, and uh, trying to think what else. Oh, shoes, big selection of athletic shoes this time of year. And I really enjoyed the experience at the two Lidl's I went to. And their goal is to spread across America. We'll see how well they do. Uh, Lidl and Aldi both have just driven Walmart out of England that Lidl and Aldi have taken so much market share that Walmart said we give up and is leaving a longtime market in England and across the United Kingdom because they're so hard to compete against. So if you live on the eastern seaboard and you've been by one of these Lidl's but you didn't know what it was and didn't ever step foot in, go sample it, see what you think, because these stores that Aldi has in Lidl are changing the price equation for you and me in the supermarket business. And wherever they go, they force the traditional supermarket players in a market to lower their prices significantly because the price gap is so monstrous. Aldi is usually about 40% cheaper for food than you'd have at a traditional mainstream supermarket that you might go to, and that's a big, big difference. I don't know if Lidl is the same 40% cheaper, but looking at items in the store, it is a whole lot less expensive. Deb is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Deb. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How can I serve you today? Well, we're at sort of a crossroads here. We're considering... um, selling our house and moving to um, a more inexpensive part of the country. And Where are you now and where are you thinking of moving? Um, we live in Connecticut and we're thinking of moving to the Carolinas. So that will be a, a huge reduction in cost of living for you. Correct. Especially the taxes on our, on our house. Um, we figured we would the initial plan is we know we would live there for probably 10 years, um, maybe longer, but um, we're about 15 years away from retirement, and we're not sure that that's where we want to retire. But um, we found some areas down there where the school systems are good. We, um, we have two kids still in school, and so that, was, that factored into our decision to pick that area of the country. Um, and we do know that we will probably over a 10-year period, probably save at least $40,000 in costs. Um, I work at home, so I can maintain my um, current salary and my position. Um, I've already checked with my employer. And my husband um, works in the healthcare industry, so he would be able to make a similar salary, probably a little bit less, but pretty close. So, um, so the incoming money would be very similar, but the outgoing money would be much lower. What we were wondering is... We have a lot of equity in our house, so we know that we'll have a significant amount of cash after we sell our house. Should we, um, just knowing that the initial plan is to stay 10 years, but we could stay there longer, should we put more money down on the house 
and, you know, take a shorter loan or just put the standard 20% down, take a slightly longer loan, knowing that we won't pay it off and then, you know, pocket the rest of the cash. Well, uh, all right, I've got several things to say to you. Let's deal first with the question you asked me, and that is Mm -hmm. I would want you, if you clear a lot of money on the sale of your home, to put it into the new home and take out a 15-year mortgage instead of a traditional 30. Okay. Because you'll get a meaningfully lower interest rate on the 30 than the 15. There's not as big a difference in those interest rates as there's been over the last few years You'll save maybe um, five-eighths of a point, which is meaningful mm-hmm. money in right. interest every month. And you'll build up equity at a really rapid rate. It would mean by the time you retired, if you did stay for the full cycle to retirement in that house, you'd be completely mortgage debt-free. Okay. And so taking the proceeds and pouring it into the new home would give me much more peace of mind for your future. Okay. All right. There is something, though, I wanted to say to you that you didn't ask me, and that is, if you're going to make such a significant change, have you ever lived anywhere else in the country other than in New England? Yes. Okay. Where else in the country have you lived? Um, I'm actually, I'm not from New England. I'm originally from California. So living in a different part of the country is not a shock to your system. No, no. I've, you know, been through I moved to New England completely alone. I had I didn't know anybody here other than my coworkers cuz I transferred with my company. Um but I didn't know, you know, I didn't have any family members and um I I have since met my husband. He's from here. So I know that for him and my children this will be a new experience for them. Well, that's, I, that brings me to the, the reason I was posing a question like that, because an alternative is for a year, a school year, you rent a place in North Carolina instead of buy a place mm-hmm. to make sure it's the right move. Because buying real estate and selling real estate, the in and the out's pretty expensive, mm-hmm. and it would force you to move twice in a 12-month period which you might not want to do, but if you if you rent, it keeps you more a free agent if where you've moved in North Carolina doesn't seem like the right idea. Right. Gotcha. So just consider that as a potential alternative, but I think without doubt on your main question, throw all the proceeds into the new home and take out as short a loan as you possibly can. And I hope the move works out great. Felicia's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Felicia. Hello, how are you? Great, thank you, Felicia. How can I serve you today? Well, I have a, I have a question. I was reading an article, and I saw a commercial, and it was about investing in companies who then, in turn, send you settlement checks, like, every quarter. And I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to try and get more information on investing, but I just wanted to make sure it was legit first. Okay, so I'm, I'm based on what you said, I'm going to take a wild guess, but I may be wrong. Are you talking about all the ads talking about freedom checks? Yes. Ah, okay. So what that is, is it's a pitch about how you could get 
from a little rich to a lot rich, mm-hmm. putting money in what are known as MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, typically investing in oil and gas. Okay. And it's a high cost, high risk kind of form of investing. But my understanding of all the ads that are out there are Uh all about a way to try to get uh, newsletter subscriptions, not to actually sell the MLPs. Uh And so this is something that is for money that if you wanted to do something with money that's your uh, throwaway money, if you have any throwaway money. No. (laughs) If you have no throwaway money, I think you need to stay more conventional with investing okay. and okay. concentrate on doing things like Roth IRAs, doing, uh, if you have a 401k at work, do that kind uh-huh. of thing, that when you get involved in oil and gas, there's uh-huh. enormous risk. And although there are stories you can always come up with of people that did extremely well in that, as a general rule... A lot of people lose the money they invest, all or much of it. So that's not your thing, I'm gathering. No, it's not my thing. Okay. Well, I'm glad you checked it out. Conservative side. Sorry. I would be more conservative. I'm not. I'm not um, good with high risk. Okay. Well, and I want to tell you, don't be too conservative with your money either. Are you saving for retirement right now? Yes. And my how do you do that? Has, well, my company currently has 401k and a pension plan. Great. So now I'm trying to figure out a way to try to subsidize that. I'm in my early 40s, so I don't want to wait till more. I don't want to wait longer All right. before I figure if, out that I may need more money. If you want to do more and you're not doing a Roth IRA, that's mm-hmm. the next step. Okay. It'll allow you to put aside up to $5,500 in a year. And at Clark.com, I have a guide that walks you through how to set one up, what companies I like for you to do it with, and what investment choice I would start with, which in most people's case would be a simple target retirement fund for the year closest to when you think you might want to retire. Today's Clark Rageous Moment is a special warning for you If you have a car that's keyless, that you just have to have the fob in your pocket, you push a button in the car to start it, there's a problem that can happen. I had a rental car this past weekend that I got out of at a store and was walking towards the store and I'm like, wait a minute, I never turned the car off, did I? Then I had to go back to the car and get in and turn the car off because I just forgot. And and that was that was something that was like, huh. And then I'm on the airplane flying home yesterday and I'm reading this story that ran in this is New York Times about how people are dying because they'll come home with a car that's a, a keyless fob They'll get out of the car and go in the house. Maybe they're talking to somebody when they get in the garage or whatever, and they've forgotten they never turn the car off, and then they die from carbon monoxide poisoning. And this is actually happening that people are dying 
because of it. And there was a recommendation years ago from an engineering group for the automotive industry saying that there should be an alert system to tell you that you haven't turned your car off, a beep or a honk of the horn or whatever. And as best I know, nothing like that's being done by any automaker. But if you have a keyless fob, have a process in your mind where you remember if you garage park it, they always remember to turn that vehicle off before you leave the car because one time, just one time forgetting to do that could cost you or the life of a family member his or her life. So just fair warning. Thanks for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. You can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. I had told you I was going to talk about developments in personal transportation right now, but I'm going to transport that to another hour because I think it's important that I talk about the Supreme Court decision that is going to legalize sports gambling in states that want to do it in the country. Now, if you're not aware, the Supreme Court voted overwhelmingly 7-2 to two to open up Uh, sports betting in states that want to do so and states will have a choice whether they want to permit you only to go to a casino one of the is they're referred to indian casinos in a state or if you would be able to do online gambling on sports events however you'd like to do it now there are people that are very upset about this and i want to address that because The reality is people have been placing illegal bets with bookies for as long as I've been around. And it is common that people place bets on every form of sport, whether it is legal or not. And so, you know, my longtime bias has been unless there's a compelling reason, a compelling argument to prohibit an activity that people be allowed to do so. Now, I think gambling is dumb. I don't do it. I think state lotteries are really a bad idea. You know, every time the Powerball or that other one, the big game, become big jackpots, I'm like, giving you know i give every reason why you shouldn't waste the money on those tickets and so as far as me placing a bet on a game never going to happen but if that's something you want to do it should be something you can do there's worry that there'll be so much money involved that people will buy off players or coaches or umpires or referees or whatever to try to change the outcome of a sports event or narrow the score against the spread for a potential big payoff. And there's always the possibility of corruption with, you know, a player or whatever being bought off. And this has happened at various times in sporting history in the United States But let the free market rule. If you want to go do the crazy bets, go ahead. 
The one, though, that has always just torn at my heart is when someone will win a bet against the spread and be excited even though their home team lost because they covered the spread. Oh, man. That just eats at me because you're either for your home team or you're not. And that's more important. That's why whenever I've done a gentleman's bet, which is a dollar bet with somebody about you know a game versus a team I love, even if the other team is favored, I always do the bet straight up because I wouldn't want to win if the team didn't win. In other words, I'm obviously not a gambler at all. But if you want to gamble and your state makes it legal, that's the way it should be. Bert is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Bert. Hello, Clark. Bert, you are thinking of doing a favor to a friend, apparently. Uh, yes, sir. What are you thinking of doing? Well, uh, I have a friend who needs a vehicle for a short period of time, so I was going to loan her one of my cars that I don't, uh, I don't use. We have three cars. My wife and I use two of them regularly, and one of them's kind of uh, off and on. So I was thinking of letting her borrow uh, this, our friend, let her borrow that third car, but I was looking to see if there's a way to protect myself insurance-wise so that I wouldn't bear the brunt of any accident. Yeah, you face, you face a lot of liability risk when you allow your friend to operate the vehicle. How much would you guess the vehicle's worth? Um, probably five or 6000 at this point. So an alternative is you could, uh, you could sell the car temporarily to the friend and defer any, you know, that you would hold the loan paper and you defer that any payments have to be made for, uh, you said you're going to lend it for six months? Uh, yeah, maybe a month or two. Oh, a month maybe or not two. not quite six months. Yeah, just kind of a short term. I mean, the only way to really completely protect yourself is to have a change in ownership, and then when she's done with it, that it's registered back in your name. That is, that is the best that's way it. to protect yourself. If that's okay. more work than you want to do, do you have an insurance agent or do you uh, use an 800 number company? Uh, I usually do online, uh, so I don't work directly with an agent. So most of my quoting and whatnot has been just looking online. So the insurer you're with, you don't do through an agent. It's, it's with the company itself. Correct, yes. I would call the company and ask, say, you know, you, exactly what you told me. I mean, just lay it out to them. And okay. say you're, you wanted to know, is there a way to insure lending a car for two months to a friend? Okay. And if, if they say, not on your life, then you've got to go through the more complicated thing where you do sell the car and then she sells it back to you when she's done with it. So it, it's something like that, if I did where I would sell her the car and I'm putting air quotes in here, but if I sold her the car in which we did a title transfer, would would it be worth it to get, uh, I guess it's always worth it to get it in writing that, okay, this car is really coming back to me at the, at the end of all this. Well, what you do, what you have to do instead is you have a note that she doesn't have to pay on 
for the period of time you're agreeing that she would be driving the vehicle. And then payments would have to start at that point, and you make the payments retroactive to the first day with interest. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean the person will honor that and pay or would return the car as agreed. Uh, right. Once you give somebody possession of your vehicle, you got to hope that they're 100% honorable. Yeah. But I I know there's probably some expense involved with transferring a title. Uh, She would have to buy insurance on it for the period of time she'd be operating it. So it's not like she's going to have completely free transportation. But if you are doing something out of the kindness of your heart, and at the same time, you don't want to end up with a big uh, opening for liability. If right. your insurer says, we don't want anything to do with that, you're on your own, that's when you know you've got to do it the traditional way of signing it over to her. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. Thank you. Because I had an alternative if it was going to be much shorter and you wanted to help somebody out. It was just for a few weeks. You could front her the money to rent a car for a few weeks. Okay. And then that way, the rental's in her name. Everything about it is in her name. But if it's going to be, sounds like, a few months, then it does become something where you really have to think about your liability as you're thinking through to your credit ahead of time instead of after the fact. Renee is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Great, thank you. You got a question for me about getting money from people. Tell me. Okay, I'm interested in point of sale, um, accepting credit cards from my iPhone in person, say like through Marketplace, if I sell something through Marketplace, or uh, if I have a yard sale, something like that and people don't carry cash a lot anymore so i wanted to be able to accept their debit card or credit card through my iphone so easy now if you if card is present it's really easy okay so in the transactions you're talking about they would hand you their card you would run it and then you'd hand them back the card right correct yeah so if and that's called card present in the industry Mm-hmm. So you can do uh, either Square or PayPal. Both really dominate that business. Okay. And have you have you ever done that where somebody has the little attachment to an iPhone or Android and you just run the card? Yes, I have. Yeah, so you would be doing the same thing as the merchant as you've done on the other end of it as the as the customer. The cool thing about the system from PayPal called the PayPal Reader or the Square system is called Square Up is that you pay no monthly minimums, no monthly fees, but you do give up about 2.75% of the transaction to them. Okay. And so it's a clean, simple, straight deal. Okay. Same with PayPal. You have a, a, a fee Per transaction? Yeah, two point I think PayPal's slightly cheaper, two point seven. I think they undercut Square Up by just a teensy amount. Okay. And do you have to have the actual um 
device uh, with PayPal, or is it? Do they have a wireless? Do you know? Yeah, they each they each have a device that reads the card. Okay. Okay. And it it attaches to the phone, and then you're able to run the charges. Okay, that sounds great. And because the card's present, even if somebody presents a stolen card, you will normally be protected from any possibility of having a charge back for someone saying, hey, that wasn't my card. I mean, you know, my card wasn't used there. All right. Does that help? Oh, yes, that's that's exactly what I needed. All right. Well, you have a great day and good luck with your business. You too. Thank you. Bye. And Jay joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jay. Hello, Clark. Jay, you got a question for me about check writing. Yes. I hate Uh, checks. (laughs) That's the answer. (laughs) Well, that's uh, that's kind of what I was wondering. We we have uh, different opinions here. Uh, I'd like to maybe use banking online. Uh, I was concerned about the checks and the routing and Sometimes it'd be easier just to get online and take care of that. But uh, we have a, you know, we we have a difference of opinion here, and we just want I want to find out what your thoughts were. Well, checks are very dangerous because with a check, the information on the bottom of that, if it's ever intercepted or ends up being seen by a dishonest person, they can do all kinds of havoc in your life with the what's known as the transit numbers on the bottom of a check. It's okay. much, much, much safer now to pay electronically than it is to pay with a paper check because so of the risks involved. What are some things we would need to do to be uh, more safe with the online? Uh, just make sure our virus protection is up to date? And Well, you know, my belief is that if you're going to do electronic bill pay, you buy a separate cheap computer to do your banking and your bill pay. Okay. You know, you can buy a, um, my favorite for this is known as a Chromebook because they're resistant to viruses. And you can buy a refurb Chromebook for like a hundred bucks. Okay. And then you have a separate computer that's used for nothing other than electronic bill pay and going into your account. And if you have brokerage account or mutual fund account, doing that on the separate financial computer. Okay. I wasn't planning on using our phone, uh, but just... The you know, I don't have a problem with you using an app on your phone. Really? Yeah. I think that's okay. Because okay. The, the, um, the responsibility for the security in that case is even more tilted towards the provider of the app, and I think you should feel comfortable using an app on your smartphone for electronic transactions. I think that's A-OK. Patrick is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Patrick. How are you today? Uh, I'm good on a rainy uh, day in Florida. Oh, I'm sorry it's raining on you. I thought it's always supposed to be sunny in Florida. Yeah, well, we need the rain, so we're glad for it. Oh, good. Well, how can I be of service to you now that you're a shut-in on a rainy day? <laughs> uh, a few weeks back, and uh, I bought a 2016 Toyota RAV4 from a local dealer. 
who was who wasn't a Toyota deal. He happened to be a Kia dealer, but he had a good deal. It only had eleven thousand miles on it. And I'm telling you, Clark, within two days, I was getting postcards from these fantastic companies that offered me extended warranties because my warranty was about to expire. Yeah. And I know I and I read some of your stuff, and I just thought I would put it out there. It's probably not a good idea to get these. The dealer tried to sell me uh, a a cut down two thousand dollar model will save you. You know when when something happens to your car, and I didn't I didn't buy that one either. Well, the only one, if you ever did buy one, would be one that's a Toyota branded one from Toyota Motor, because you want uh, you want an extended warranty from the brand of the manufacturer. And even though you bought it from a Kia dealer, the fact is that would still be well within the, the mileage of the Toyota original factory manufacturer warranty. And that would make right. you eligible for the factory extension of a warranty. But well, my 3,000, my 3,000, uh, my uh, three-year, 36,000, uh, all warranty was about to, is about to expire because... It's a 2016, 17, now we went to 18. Well, actually, it'd be, um, I think it would be good till next year. It's not, you don't count the first year as a year. Really? Yeah. So remember, it'd be 36 months from when the car was originally sold. So unless it was sold originally in 15, you would have till Mm -hmm. next year. Oh. So I got that. I got a bump steer on that one too. Then. Well, you just need to know what the original date it went into service, and you can call Toyota and find that out. Yeah, I will do that. Okay. Um, but here's another thing: Toyota. Uh, if you look at Consumer Reports and also JD Power, they both have Toyota is pretty much just about the most reliable vehicle you can buy. That's why I bought it. And so buying an extended warranty on it, even though I'm neutral on them, as you probably read in my notes on Clark.com, Toyota is so historically reliable that it would argue against buying an extension of that warranty at all. But if you ever did buy one, remember, only from Toyota. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. I want you to know that I appreciate so much that you've just tuned into our podcast, that you had faith in the information and advice you get. You want more information from us? One of the best ways to get Clark Smart is with our free newsletters, Clark Daily, Clark Deals, and Travel Escape. Sign up now. You'll be able to unsubscribe at any time if you think I'm wasting your time. Go to Clark.com newsletters.